We're considering the life of David this summer, and at the turn of the last millennium, really before the turn of Christ, we're talking about roughly the time period around 1000 B.C. Israel, these collection of 12 tribes that are living in Palestine, begin to ask God for a king. And God uh, answers that request and gives them King Saul, who works out uh, to not be a very good king. He's not obedient. He's not interested in how God wants him to rule. And so God chooses to anoint David to be the next king of Israel. It's David will be the king of God's choosing. And uh, as we're in this, we're in a period, you know, just to kind of set the stage for our reading, that Saul is still the king recognized by Israel, but David's rapidly ascending. He's gaining more and more prestige, more and more notice amongst the people. And uh, in the mix of this is Saul's son, Jonathan, who would be the heir apparent and must decide how he's going to respond by someone who's actually going to displace him as king. It's really uh, quite a profound drama. And this is where we find ourselves as we read a little bit of what we read last week to remind ourselves of the friendship between David and Jonathan and then to see how that plays out in chapter 20. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul sent him My wife just cleared her throat, which means I've gone beyond verse 4. So let's turn over to chapter 20, where we will continue. I get so excited about the story. Verses 1 through 17. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow on the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, 
Shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my Father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my Father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for the love, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. <laughs> Jennifer just cleared her throat again, and I thought, surely I didn't mess up again. But left off verses 41 and 42, which are crucial. We'll read them in a little bit. Goodness. So, uh, I saw a commercial recently that I don't know that it got very much airtime in the United States, but it was a pretty moving commercial. It's for Guinness. And uh, it has a, a, a wheelchair basketball team that's playing a pretty intense game of uh, wheelchair basketball on the court, and they're knocking each other over and trying to shoot, and teams are cheering each other. And as the commercial is drawing to a close, someone says, oh, I'm actually getting pretty good at this. And at that moment, everyone gets up out of their wheelchair except for one guy. And the theme of the, the idea of the Guinness commercial is that, you know, it breeds this kind of friendship. Friendship in which these men who, who, who want to mourn and sympathize and empathize with their friend who has lost the use of his legs, we're going to learn to play wheelchair basketball with him. What a neat picture, right? Of, of friendship and community and commitment. I started to think, man, is, is that really true? Would that really happen? Would a group of men actually give up all this time to learn how to, how to be agile in a wheelchair and learn to play basketball in that fashion? And then the other side of it is, would one person really be willing to let their friend spend all of this time just for him? It would be a very difficult place to be in, in addition to all their other duties and responsibilities. It made me think about what the nature of friendship and the nature of friendship in our culture and we have here in the story of David and Jonathan, one of the most beautiful stories of friendship, not just in the Bible, but in all of ancient antiquity. It's an intense relationship that is born out of a, a common refrain that they loved each other as they loved their own soul. And so as we consider friendship, um, when we read a story like David and Jonathan, it's interesting, I think for most people, we can't help but have something inside us that and I wish I had a relationship like that. I wish I had someone that I connected with on such a deep level that we were, we were bonded in that fashion. Now, most people in culture today, people who talk about culture and who write about culture, would say that friendship is under assault. That for uh, numerous reasons uh, that we have talked about at various times and won't go into depth, but technology, the mobility of our culture, the number of times we engage career changes, uh, all of these things, the size of our communities, uh, the uh, perception or reality of busyness that we undergo, all of these things threaten the nature of uh, friendship within our culture. To the extent that some would say that this, this idea of friendship that we see portrayals of in the ancient world is virtually lost in modern society. 
So you've heard it over and over again over the last 10 or 15 years. It's been repeated ad nauseum that we are a culture. We have more access to people than any other generation prior to us in the history of the world. And we're more lonely than any other culture or generation previous to us in the history of the world. Now, whether you buy that or not, I think uh, we feel that sentiment, that we would like a degree of intimacy, that we would like a connection with people that has more in common with the story of David and Jonathan than with our experience, with our lack of, of that kind of friendship. So, as we consider the notion of friendship that is informed by God, so I'm going to refer to that as Christian friendship, let's make some observations as we work our way through the passage before us. We recognize, and the first observation I want to make is that Christian friendship requires sacrifice. It's the first thing we're going to note. We recognized last week that if David is going to be king, then Saul's not going to be king, but that also means that Jonathan is not going to be king. The heir apparent is going to have to give up his role, and Jonathan is okay with that. In 18.1-4, he gives up the symbols of his power, and particularly in the handing off of his royal robe, uh, the robe that signifies his authority, that signifies he's the prince. He gives that to David and says, listen, I get it. God has chosen you. I'm not going to be king. I would rather be bound up in God's story than in the story that my father is trying to play out. And Jonathan's willingness to give up his, his, uh, his right to inherit the throne, so to speak, is further evidence in verse 20. Look at verse 4 of chapter 20. Once David realized that his life was in danger, Jonathan offered, whatever you say, I will do for you. And in verse 9, he says, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Now what really is going on here? Let's pause for just a minute and realize what's at stake for Jonathan. Jonathan is saying, listen, whatever you need, I know your threat, your life, you perceive your life to be in danger. I'm not really sure my father's at that point. But you tell me what you need and I'm going to do it. And Jonathan, in making this decision, has to weigh at least two things. Number one, he has to weigh that siding with David means he's siding against his father. Right? There's, there's no overlap between the agendas or the stories. Either Saul's agenda is going to move forward or David's agenda is going to move forward. They're not going to overlap. So if Saul decides or if Jonathan decides that he's for David, then he's deciding that he's against his own father. And this is going to completely alienate his relationship with his dad. Secondly, he has to weigh the risk that he puts himself at. In verse 14, uh, Jonathan recognizes his, uh, he, that he may not come back alive from this. And there's danger for him. He doesn't know how his father's going to respond. And we didn't take the time to read the whole chapter, but indeed, when Saul learns of Jonathan's affection for David, learns that he's kind of gone over to his side, he's enraged, he throws a spear at him. He takes a shot at his own son. So his life is very much in danger by having made this decision. But you see that friendship, real friendship or commitment with David requires significant sacrifice, profound sacrifice, which is the nature of Christian relationship. But this you know, we see in Jonathan that friendship is sacrificial. It's self-effacing. It considers David to be more important right, than Jonathan considers himself. He's more committed to David's story than he is to his own story. 
When we see it, it's an echo of the gospel or it's a foreshadowing of the gospel. You have to, how do you do that? How do you sacrifice for someone? And how do you do it with consistency? And is it worth it? Aren't you afraid that if you sacrifice for someone, it's, you're going to end up regretting that you sacrifice for that person? And no one can sacrifice all the time. It just bleeds you dry. So where does one find the strength to sacrifice in the midst of relationship? This is the second thing we see in this chapter, which is that uh, Christian friendship is defined by a common truth. And actually, the point I want to make here is a point that C.S. Lewis makes, but that all friendship is defined by a common truth. Christian friendship is defined by the most important of common truths. What does that mean and why is it important? Jonathan has already been demonstrating that he understands that, um, that there is a greater story at stake. That there is a common truth to which both he and David are ascribing that actually knit them together. Right? It's not simply that they like hanging out or they like shooting their bows together. But Jonathan recognizing that there's an unfolding of God's revelation that David will be king and that God's sovereignty played out in that is the best thing for Israel, and so he participates in that common truth. And in verse 13, Jonathan says in almost prophetic words, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. What does that mean? Jonathan May the Lord be with you as he's been with my father. means, listen, if he's going to be with you as he's been with my father, that means the end of my father. It means the end of my dynasty in a way that one would conceive. And one, you know, how is this going to end? It's not going to end well. Saul is not taking a road where he's going to give up the throne lightly. Right? The entire narrative is heading towards conflict. This is going to require a resolution between this contested throne. And of course, that ultimately will be David, but it will cost Saul and cost Jonathan dearly. But we see that this notion that that Jonathan is willing to give himself over to the, the truth of God's revelation, that is what informs his friendship with David, and that is what is at the core of Christian friendship. Lewis has a beautiful essay on friendship that is uh, very much worth reading. It occurs in his book, The Four Loves. And Lewis warns that there's a real danger in mistaking companionship or camaraderie for true friendship. There's a significant difference, and we often mistake the two. Anytime people of a common interest come together, there's companionship. There's camaraderie. Uh, you get together in a book club, or you meet somebody and you like to cook the same things, or you're, you're bound together with a certain group of people on a project at work. Right? Any common interest that brings people together is going to form companionship, is going to form camaraderie. But Lewis says this isn't friendship. Friendship is then created out of that companionship, out of that camaraderie, by a common spark that's born out of the friction of that companionship. And that is when, when two people share something that is even more highly specific. It's a truth that transcends just the common interest to give common purpose. This is the way uh, Lewis says essentially the question to true friendship is, do you care about the same truth? Friendship isn't bound necessarily. We enjoy the same activity. 
Do you care about the same truth? We see this holding Jonathan and David together. And Lewis, uh, Lewis articulates it this way. Friendship arises uh, out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and which, till that moment, each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, What? You too? I thought I was the only one. And it is that truth that binds people together in common purpose. Lewis says, though, the inverse then is greatly, is is very dangerous. In other words, what Lewis is hinting at is that friendship is only friendship if it's defined by a common truth that leads to common purpose. This is why also in this essay, it's the very famous part where he says, lovers tend to spend their time gazing at one another. Friends tend to spend their time gazing in the same direction. They are set for the common purpose. And without that common purpose, then there really is no friendship. Which means that if you're seeking friendship simply for friendship's sake, you're never going to find it. It's a pretty significant insight. This is how Lewis puts it. That is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing and I don't care about the truth, I only want a friend. No friendship can arise. Though affection, of course, may. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Goodness. We live in a time and a place that is desperate for friendship. And here, Lewis is saying the surest way to fail to find friendship is to seek friendship. Perhaps then our struggle, our lack of friendship, has more to do with forsaking truth than it does with anything else we think pits itself against friendship, like technology. Because if there is no common truth that we hail to, that we think is supreme, that defines and directs all the decisions that we're making in our life, then there can be no friendship that's built around that common truth. And so the second thing that we see, it's true of Christian friendship, embodied and represented so starkly in this passage, is that it must share a common truth. Three, surprising blessing uh, comes through Christian friendship. What do I mean by that? Well, if you think for a second about this chapter, it's actually very surprising because it does this. It does a flip-flop in the midst of the chapter, which you may have picked up on. At uh, the beginning of chapter 20, David's life is threatened by Saul. He comes to Jonathan. He's on the run, essentially, from Saul. And he says, listen, there's only a step between me and death. So at the beginning of the chapter, it appears very much that Jonathan will be instrumental in saving David. But by the time you get to the end of our reading, Jonathan is asking David to preserve him. He recognizes that this may not go well, that Saul may be pitted against David. And if that is the case, then inevitably because God is with David, Saul will lose 
And so Jonathan is saying, please, if I come back alive, preserve. Preserve me, preserve my line for my faithfulness and my love to you. And you realize at the end of the chapter that no, David isn't the one who's being saved. David is the one who's doing the saving of the king's son. And how often do we experience that in our Christian friendships? Do we think to ourselves, oh, I'm going to move into this relationship and I'm going to be an agent of grace and wisdom and love in the midst of this relationship only to find that once you have moved into that relationship that you have been a recipient of far more than you intended to give. That God has taught you something about grace and humility and love by virtue of you actually receiving what you intended to give in the midst of a Christian friendship. It's one of the beautiful aspects to, uh, to friendship that's defined by God. Third, I want you to see that... We're up to three. Pay no attention to the numbering this morning because I renumbered it many times and I'm not actually sure of the numbering. So I'll just keep telling you when we're making a new observation and you can number them however you want. New observation. Christian friendship is, is raw. And for this, we need to read uh, the, uh, the portion that I neglected earlier, which is 20 uh, at the very end, beginning uh, at verse 41. So, and again, everything transpires. Jonathan goes to Saul. Saul's angry. He definitely wants to kill David. He tries to kill Jonathan. Jonathan returns to David, who's hiding out, lets him know the truth. And in 41, and as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. What a remarkable picture, description, of two men in the midst of an intense friendship that is is uh, saturated, it's just characterized by sadness and by grief. And yet, the, you know, culture today is doesn't know what to do with this kind of picture of male friendship. It's very common to see in writing at large the theory that David and Jonathan were playing for the other team because of the intimacy that's portrayed. I think, how sad. How sad that we've moved so far and are so uncomfortable from engaging a real male friendship that we that anyone would have to reach for something of that fashion to define what's going on in this passage. There was an essay recently, a man was lamenting male friendships in our culture. And he wrote about his own uh, friendship. Uh, his name, name is Ben, and he grew up with a, a great friend named Dan. They grew up a few blocks apart in the same city. They went to the same public school. Um, and then, even though one family moved away from the other, uh, Ben and Dan found themselves in the same graduate school. They both were in each other's wedding. They uh, went on vacation together with each other's family. They played poker. Uh, they were um, would go on men's weekends and grill together. And on and on and on. They were groomsmen in each other's weddings. And then at 40, some offense happened. Ben offended Dan in a way that he's not even sure how he did so, and the relationship 
just came to an abrupt halt. There was no more communication. They're cut off from each other. And there was there wasn't any climatic blow up. And so this caused Ben to write this. Men no longer know how to fight. Don't get me wrong. We know how to confront strangers when they cut line at the butchers or block the door on the subway. What we don't know how to do is have the kind of unpleasant talks that articulate feelings to real friends when those friends ignore our wives at a dinner or don't think to call us when we are fired. Instead, we either shrug off the slight or end the friendship. And he marvels at it. He says, you know, why is it that men have this problem? He says, women don't have it. Women labor through a difficulty in a relationship more often than men, not always. And when they do so often, the relationships are stronger than the relationships that men experience. And so he wrote, My wife and her friend hurt each other's feelings at dinners with other friends. Then they stew and obsess and vent to other friends. Next, they engage in a difficult phone call. A few days later, they meet and drink wine and work on gently knitting their bond back together. And their friendship not only survives, but is strengthened. Men can't seem to do that. What a pleasure it would be to voice my pains and disappointments like Lauren does. I suppose that I would have to hear some guys complain to me about my insensitivity and distance too. It would be worth it. Post-fight, I would be more present for my friends, and they could be more present for me. Most men that I know would resonate with that description of male friendship. That there's an unwillingness to to move into intimacy, to move in a place of vulnerability where you would actually say to someone who has hurt you, listen, you, you really hurt me. Suddenly that sounds culturally, it sounds weak. When Jonathan and David fall on each other weeping for the situation that they find themselves in, and the text goes out of its way to say David weeped harder, is that a portrayal of weakness or is it a portrayal of strength? I think unquestionably the latter, but it shows us that friendship, real friendship, particularly Christian friendship, bound together by common truth, is raw. There's a willingness to be real, a willingness to not to expose things that they might be resolved, that they might be healed, and relationships might be made stronger for the result of that endeavor. We see that we're weak in that. We struggle with it when we read a passage like this that shows such intimacy between David and Jonathan. Last observation is that Christian friendship must be held with an open hand. Verse 42 says, And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. It's at this point in this narrative of 1 Samuel that Jonathan will go back to Jerusalem to be with Saul, his father. David will begin to uh, be on the run, even more distinctively, from Saul's anger and his wrath as Saul actually assembles troops to go after him. And in the midst of this profoundly intimate friendship, uh, it ends here. Jonathan disappears from the narrative. He and David won't see each other again. Part of the reason that they are so torn up. Jonathan will only re-enter to meet his death. We, we see this, and we see this beautiful friendship, this willingness to sacrifice and love each other at great expense to oneself, so that this phrase can be used that love one another as they love their own soul. 
And then it ends. And they're torn asunder. We think, couldn't there be a better ending? Wouldn't God want a better ending to a story, to a friendship like this? We realize that now on this side of glory, sometimes friendships, Christian friendships, will be rent asunder. That God's purposes, His revelation, His story as it moves forward has greater purposes and takes priority. And sometimes those friendships have to be torn apart for reasons that sometimes we understand and sometimes reasons that we don't understand. But when we hold... Can you imagine that? I mean, this is the challenge of Christian friendship, to at one and the same time be ridiculously vulnerable and intimate, to love someone passionately at expense to yourself, and at the same time to hold that relationship with an open hand. It's a very hard thing to do, to invest yourself some, something holy that you recognize is not yours to possess, and you do not control it. It belongs to the one who gave the truth to you to define your friendship in the, per, in the first place. How in the world do we walk through this life in that fashion? It is only then to look at that example of friendship that Jesus embodies for us, of which this entire passage is an echo. We've said, number one, love is sacrificial. Jesus has loved you to the extent that he would lay down his life for your redemption. So that love is bound by a common truth, and the love of Christ for you is, is bound by the truth that exists in the Trinity that then catches us up with it. And it is this truth that as Jesus lays down his life for his people, they will be redeemed, they will be rescued. We said that friendship as well is raw. And there are a few things as raw as the Son of Man hanging in his loincloth on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. For John to tell us that greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. And that friendship must be held with an open hand. That Jesus would sacrifice his own friendship with the Father and with the Spirit, be severed in that fashion. Why? So that we might be captured in a permanent fashion in his hand and be brought close. That's the picture of Christian friendship. It's the picture that that Paul, when he's writing Philippians 2, which was our New Testament reading, he says, listen, if you're going to be the people of God, you've got to have this mind in you. It's the mind that was in Christ Jesus. And he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. That's the mind that you should have with one another. Emptying yourself of all the things that you think you deserve all the things that you think you warrant by your own righteousness, and saying and said, what is the common truth to which I am bound? And then focusing on that, say, how can I serve? How can my hands and my feet be used as tools to demonstrate this truth to the people who are gathered with me and to the world outside? And that is the mission which defines our friendship, which gives it birth. We're not a people who are called together to hang out simply because we like hanging out. That's a great byproduct. We're called together because we are defined by a truth and a purpose. 
And as soon as you become disinterested in that truth or purpose, or you realize that you're engaged in a relationship that is not defined by that truth and purpose, then you've got some hard wrestling to do. Questions that you should be asking going home this week, why are you here? Why? If the answer to that question is not first and foremost... I believe that the mission of Trinity Harbor Church captures the truth of the gospel to which I am bound and I've chosen to, to live that out with this group of people and experience friendship as a byproduct of that purpose, then you might be in the wrong place. The other question you have to ask is, what do my friendships look like? Are my friendships in this world defined by that very purpose, by that very link, and am I sacrificing for them? Or are they defined by other things? My friends, I love my friends. I want to get together with my friends because we have the best time together. We are, we, we have a common truth and that common truth is pleasure and drinking or shooting or whatever hobby is our queen. If that truth is what you think is worth, defining friendship over, I think you're going to be disappointed. But you have to wrestle with what is the most important truth and how should it inform your friendships. And if your friendships aren't informed by that, then maybe your friendships aren't worth having. Maybe they need to be reconstituted or re-examined or perhaps even traded. These are hard questions to wrestle with if you really want to live out the gospel, to live out a vision of Christian friendship, right? But how glorious are they? How worthwhile? When you begin to taste the friendship that Jonathan and David portray for us, that you find yourself in a place so committed to truth that binds you together that you sacrifice for one another unhesitatingly that your love for one another is so deep that you love each other as your own soul, that you uh, are raw with one another. There's no hesitancy to be vulnerable because you know you're loved. And even to be in that place of strength that you are so confident in Christ and His purposes and that you know that friendship will be for eternity on the other side of glory, that you can hold it with an open hand. Weigh your friendships this morning. Weigh out the truth of the gospel defines them. It's the truth of Christ's sacrifice, His broken body and His shed blood that defines our purpose. Where it does not, we need to repent. Let's prepare to come to His table this morning. By standing and singing, and as we stand, I'm going to pray for us. Our gracious God, we marvel. Uh, What is it for you, Lord Jesus, to say, yes, I will lay down my life for my friends to call something and someone so so much lower than you, uh, your creation, uh, your friend, and then to lay down your life for it. Uh, words fail to comprehend that degree of sacrifice and love. 
And so we ask that you would forgive us, for we often fail to be good friends to one another. And we often uh, gravitate toward friendships that uh, fill us up in ways that are so much less than the ways for you intend uh, us to be filled. Father, help us to remember that our time is short. Our days are numbered. And let us not end and face death thinking, I wish that my friendships had been shaped differently. But instead, make us a people who are bound together by the truth of your gospel and that our friendships are a byproduct of that commitment to that purpose, to that mission. And in so participating, we bring great glory to you and we experience deeper and deeper friendships. We ask for your grace in this and that the relationships would, that we experience would be a dim reflection of that which you experience. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you this morning. Amen.